Welcome to the View Magazine's Rebel Justice Podcast. This podcast was started by and for women in the justice system. Every week, we bring you people at the front lines and the intersections of justice, art, mental health, and the humanities. This week, we bring you Jeremy Moore, a solicitor with a national reputation for his work in high-profile and serious crime work, as well as assisting clubs and athletes in sports-related matters. Jeremy recently opened his own legal practice, More Justice. He has a particular expertise in representing clients in cases before the Court of Appeal and in applications to the Criminal Cases Review Commission with a fine eye for detail, looking to uncover new evidence that can undermine a conviction. Madalena Alberto spoke with Jeremy, who told us that he's an expert in the area of international sports law, having studied for a master's degree in international sports law at ISDE in Madrid and a master's in sports directorship at MMU. Jeremy's undertaken some of the country's most complex and high-profile cases, including defending Barry George in his acquittal for the murder of TV presenter Jill Dando and representing nurse Victorino Chua following deaths at Stepping Hill Hospital. He ran his own firm, Carter Moore, until it went into administration, following brutal cuts and late payments by the Ministry of Justice in its attempts to undermine access to justice and the legal aid scheme for the most vulnerable people. The firm had around a dozen staff members, according to the most recent accounts, filed covering 27 to 2018. Jeremy, thank you so much for giving your time to come and speak to us. If you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what sparked your interest in the criminal justice system. Yeah, okay. Well, I've been doing criminal defence work for around 30 years. So I'm showing my age. Um, I qualified in around 1994. And since my qualification, I've mainly exclusively been doing criminal defence work more so serious end of work, high profile work, particularly the last few years, most of my work is uh, appellant work and miscarriages of justice, that sort of thing. To be honest, I'd like to be one of those people who says I've always wanted to do law and, you know, I've always you know, had an interest in the justice system. I had no idea, you know, when, when I uh, trained what I wanted to do. I didn't originally do a law degree, I did, took a business studies degree. And there was a law section on that course, which I found quite interesting and sort of not being ready to get a job when I finished my degree. I thought, well, you know, I'll do law and train as a solicitor. And even then I thought, well, I qualify as a solicitor, but, you know, I'll I'll do something else eventually. But here I am 30 years later. And I actually, you know, I didn't really have any thoughts of being involved in criminal work, to be honest. When I was a trainee, I worked for a general practice firm that sort of did a bit of everything apart from crime. And then they had someone who joined the firm who did criminal work. And I worked for him and ended up getting involved in work with him. And in fact, one of the first cases I worked on was an SFO prosecution where I was basically just shut in a room with a client every day to go through the papers with him for months and then sat in on the trial for for three months and he he was acquitted. I think that's probably where I really got a taste for it. I mean, growing up, you know, looking back, I think I always had a sense of strong sense of right and wrong and what was unfair and also I think fighting for the underdog. So I think probably that's where sort of going in and, you know, uh, representing people charged with serious offences, that's sort of, that's where my motivation comes from. 
Thank you. And I'm sure it's a very good feeling when you feel like justice has been served and you're a part of it. Yeah, exactly. There's no better feeling, especially, you know, cases where you feel someone has really been wronged, particularly with appeals where, you know, they can often have dragged on for years before you get involved and then you know to to see things finally turn around and be put right then yeah that's really the best feeling that there is in in this job I think. Jeremy you've had a long and successful career defending and appealing the sentences of some of the most notorious cases. What would you say it was like working to help people who were considered dangerous and a threat to society? Yeah uh, I mean I think it goes back again to this sort of championing the cause of the underdog and you know you know these cases where often the press demonize people because you know it, at the time it's they want someone for what's often very serious offense without looking at is this the right person and i say it goes back to championing the underdog a bit where you know someone who everyone pointing their fingers at so sort of being able to look into things and say well well okay you're painted as this person is that right what actually happened but as well you know even in cases where they have difficulties in defending themselves there's always a backstory and it's very easy to demonize person and say well you know they're this they're that but everyone who is involved as a defendant in serious offenses there's something's happened in their life or has led them down that path and to a large extent, they're a victim of society as much as the actual victim of the offence. So it's sort of, you know, it's sort of having having someone there to stick up for them. Of course, you know, without defence listers, then there would be no justice system. There would be no justice. People couldn't be put on trial without someone putting their case forward. At the end of the day, you're just there, I'm just there to put someone's case forward for them, whether it be right or wrong or truthful at the end of the day. It's giving their voice and them having the right, you know, to to put their voice over and their version of events as to, as to what happened. Yes, and they need good people like you to, to do that job as well. So thank you. If you can speak a little bit about this, which were your most memorable cases? Yeah, I mean, probably my most memorable case was the was representing Barry George. Uh, he was charged with the murder of Jill Dando, who was the the television presenter. And she, you know, she was a very high profile figure at, at the time in the nineties uh, when when she was she was murdered. And uh, Barry George was an interesting chap, but he was at the end of the day, an easy target. I mean, I don't know how much you recall about the investigation, probably not, because it was a long time ago, no reason for you to, but it's a case where there have been no leads for, I think, nearly a year going into the investigation. And obviously, the there was a lot of pressure on the police to have someone charged with this offence. And all of a sudden, out of nothing, this chap, Barry George, was suddenly arrested and charged he was had learning difficulties he lived on his own in you know assisted housing spent his days just walking around the area you know it was a very easy target for the police to to pick up he's a local weirdo he's our man when the reality was it was a shooting carried out in broad daylight by a professional who managed to escape the scene and with no trace you know this was some poor 
chat with learning difficulties who in reality have no access to guns but happened to be in the area because he lived in the area and they sort of painted him in his trial as some sort of obsessive figure who you know was obsessed with celebrities in particular Jill Dando and they you know he had uh, kept magazines with with her picture in and this that and the other I mean the reality was he was a a hoarder. He had hundreds of magazines, which any magazines at the time contained pictures of Jill Dando. You know, they weren't circled or highlighted or tore out or anyway. He just had hundreds and hundreds of magazines stored in his house, which if you, you took some of them out, you're bound to find pictures of Jill Dando. So the police had painted him and in turn the press as I was some weirdo with some obsession about, about this woman obsession with celebrity he was stalking it was this and that and the reality was it was you know some troubles individual with learning difficulties who happened to hoard a lot of media paperwork and and magazines so he was when I first met him I think he'd already been in prison for five years and he'd written to me actually about some prison law issue that he had I remember at the time thinking well Oh, yeah, I know this. I know this name. Well, I don't know if I can help him on the prison law issue, but I'll, you know, I'll go and see him because he's clearly someone who, you know, has had a lot of difficulties. And I went to see him at the time. You know, obviously, I read a lot about his case and was he having any appeal? What, where was that going? So, well, in actual fact, he um, had lost an appeal. You know, would I be able to help him with that as well? I said, well, yeah more than happy to look at it and he'd actually submitted a, an application to the criminal cases review commission with the help of his family so it involved sort of looking into that going through all the evidence drafting additional representations on his ccrc application which ultimately was successful we ended up in the court of appeal the court of appeal overturned the conviction then we had a retrial where he was acquitted so sort of going back to what I was saying about you know satisfactory outcomes that was definitely right up with them I mean I, I remember after his acquittal at the end of the day as he came out there were members of the jury who were actually sort of there because they were so happy they could see by the evidence in court that there really was no case against him and you know they were just happy to see that justice had finally been done so so um, in terms of memorable cases and outcomes, that was definitely right up there. Wow. And I love the fact that you took an interest in this case and you were able to help. And I, I see that there's a lot of police work that you have to do, investigative work. Yeah. It's like, well, this case was interesting. And a lot of the work at trial have been focused on forensic evidence. And what happened was a single particle of gunpowder residue had been found in his pocket months after the offence. It wasn't a direct match for residue that was found on the victim, but there were similarities when they, you know, it wasn't like a fingerprint. You could say, well, yeah, it's certainly the same thing. They could say, well, his consistencies. So a lot of focus at this trial have been paid on trying to see where his coat could have been contaminated. You know, when the police opened at the police station, could it have been contaminated there? And when, when they took photographs, could this particle have got, got in there? What no one had actually looked at is, well, 
what is the relevance of this particle? It, mm-hmm. Did it actually mean anything in the, you know, as they found months after the event, it wasn't a direct match for particle on, on found on the victim. Did it actually mean anything? And when we had experts look into that and statisticians, what they actually ultimately said was, well, there's probably as much possibility of someone having that particle in their pocket whether they were the murderer or they were just a random person walking the street who happened to pick up a particle that happened to be in the air. So the reality of it was, wherever that particle came from, it didn't really matter. It, the fact that it was, it didn't mean anything because it, it didn't make him any more likely to be the perpetrator than if he was just a random person walking in the street. So it was almost sort of doing the police investigation in reverse, unpackaging that evidence and sort of saying, well, what does this actually mean? Did it mean anything? And in reality, it didn't. That's why the Court of Appeal said, well, no, this evidence, which was obviously key to his conviction, it had no relevance. In fact, at his retrial, that evidence was excluded because it didn't take the case any further. And without that, there really wasn't any case apart from, you know, this, this stupid argument that he had all these magazines with their photos on and little things like that Uh, there was you know there was nothing wow it's a great success story jeremy you do a lot of criminal law i've seen you do also uh, sports law but do you work a lot with women and is it different working with women defendants yeah i i do work with women and i have worked with women in fact you know i had a another great success man was a mother and daughter who were charged with the murder of a father who disappeared to the Caribbean and never seen again. It was nobody was found. I think it was just assumed because he disappeared at that time that there was clearly some disagreement between them and the father that they killed him. In fact, they they were ultimately convicted of his his murder. But um, again, the courts of appeal had a look at it and said, "Well, they they just." Couldn't say if he was murdered, if it was, who was responsible, when it was done, etc. And they overturned the conviction. So that was another satisfactory case. What I find is that I get a lot fewer inquiries from women. In that I mean, I think, well, that's because they find it a lot harder to get access to the justice system, uh, whether they feel more marginalised in terms of contacting solicitors in the first place or they think well you know I'm not going to be able to get any funding I'm not going to be able to pay for this I'm going to be in difficulties in getting something started yeah I do find that I get much fewer inquiries from women you know to probably to a ridiculous extent or you know I would say if I get maybe a dozen inquiries a week, on most occasions, none of them will be from women. So maybe perhaps in a month, I might one inquiry from a woman. But but then, you know, because of how things are with legal aid, particularly legal aid with regards to appeals, uh, it's harder and harder to assist people unless, you know, you're doing work on a pro bono basis or they're able to, to finance it. So and I think it's particularly the case with women, you know, they're often in a much more difficult situation than men. And particularly because I think, you know, when I, when I talk about 
know, having backstories, I think, you know, with, with women, there is always some sort of a backstory as to how they ended up in the in the situations they are, whether it's difficult upbringings or abusive relationships, etc. How do you think they find themselves in a much weaker position in the criminal justice system than, than men do and with much lesser access to the legal system, which is, you know, really concerning? Yes, that's really sad. And I think that's also what The View is trying to highlight and see how to better that situation. You have started a new firm. Uh, What has motivated you to do that? And what will you focus on more? Okay, well, I actually had my own practice for 16 years up until 2020. And I then went to join a big firm took my work there and I left there in July of this year. I found basically that bigger firms, I suppose understandably because they have bigger overheads etc, but they're a lot more cost focused and a lot less client focused and when you're with a bigger firm and it's you know it's not just within your control you're a lot more restricted in the kind of work you can do and for instance doing pro bono work or just sort of you know I mean I had a client firmly just before I spoke to you she said oh look you know I know you're dealing with my appeal but I'm having problems with getting home leave could you could you make a phone call for me and you know my answer is of course yeah I'll make a phone call you know I'm not going to time record every minute and charge you for every phone call and letter that I write when you're with when you're working for a bigger firm, you're always having to justify your existence. There's always targets and, you know, well, I, you know, I did this work for a client, but I'm not being paid for it. But uh, I want to help him by making this phone call or doing this extra, going the extra mile for him because we need assistance with it. I found it a lot harder and more restrictive working with a bigger firm. So enjoying far greater freedom again now, uh, working for myself. And just being able to you know, give a more all-round service to clients and sort of not watching every minute that I'm working and every little little thing that I'm doing. And also, you know, sort of being able to do, take on more pro bono work rather than having to justify every single second of, of my time. I think within a smaller niche firm, you can have a much better ethos with clients rather than sort of almost like a a factory where you know you're you're piling cases high and doing as many cases as possible you can give a much better personal service all the clients speak to you individually and you know know you they have better access to you and you know that know that they can just pick up the phone and say could you just do this for me it's something I'm much more comfortable with I'm not someone who's happy and saying no I can't do that well you know I'll do that but you need to send me this first before I can do it I think I'm in a much better place you know being able to having free reign to to do what I want in terms of clients to be honest with you wow it sounds wonderful now Jeremy the legal aid budget has shrunk in real terms and more and more lawyers are refusing to accept legal aid clients how can we make the justice system fairer so that it is accessible to everyone and not just those who can afford it do you have any thoughts yeah, I mean, obviously, the the big the big thing is, is always money, isn't it? And in these times, um, we're about to learn of new cuts. The criminal justice system is always a very easy target, isn't it, for 
to cuts because it's very easy to say to the public, we're giving less money to fund criminals defending their cases and no one is going to stand up in arms and say, well, no, you must you must give criminals more money to defend themselves. But the reality is, I mean, no one knows when they're going to be, you know, subject to the criminal justice system, whether innocent or guilty. Unfortunately, given the cuts, not just in real terms, but in actual in actual terms, like legal aid rates are lower when I started my job 30 years ago, which is ridiculous. I mean, in what other profession can you can you say that? And and yet nothing is done because you know it's not an unpopular thing to to cut legal aid rates, but the problem is, I mean, I go back to bigger firms again and taking on a lot of work because the only way bigger firms can make it work is by taking on more cases because they're getting paid less for each case. And because a lot of the work they do now is fixed fee-based, they will get paid the same fee, whatever the quality of their representation. It's mostly based on a page count of the evidence in the case. So whether they do an ounce of work or not in, in trying to defend someone, they, they will get paid the same amount, which obviously is scary in terms of if you're a defendant. But the main focus of my work is appeal work and miscarriages of justice. And most of that work is the failings of previous representatives because they've not had the resources or the inclination to do say a proper job, but a detailed, thorough job because I mean, I suppose, understandably, they're not getting paid for it. So I suppose, why would they? But obviously, it doesn't help individuals who are subject to the criminal justice system. So in terms of what can be done, it's difficult. It needs more funding. I mean, whether we're not going to get more funding from government. I mean, I've long thought whether there should be some tax on commercial firms or firms who don't do any legal aid work that you know would allow that to be paid towards the legal aid system could be something that can be looked at but certainly something has to be done because it's not just legal aid but it's the court system as well and you know the delays in cases because you know they don't have the um the courtrooms now because the because you know, the amount of courts that have closed out and court staff and even the police, you know, investigating crimes, they don't have anything like the resources they need. So one way or the other, greater resources need to be provided because our criminal justice system is getting worse and worse. I remember doing an interview 10 years ago, I think it was in the aftermath of the Barry George case in actual fact, where I was asked about, you know, what I thought about could be improved. I think even at that stage, I was talking about legal aid cuts and how, you know, it was going to lead to difficulties in the system. And it's, you know, it's, it's not got better. It's just got worse, unfortunately. Yes, that's very sad. I mean, you've already given us a, a gem of something that maybe could be done. But just to finish uh, our interview, if you were Lord Chancellor for a day, what would you like to do? Uh, well, of course, you know, I go back to, to funding and, you know, certainly fighting the corner to be gaining greater funding for the, the criminal justice system. But one thing that bothers me is, as I've said, I, I do a lot of appeal, miscarriage of justice work. I find the barrier for overturning convictions to be far too high. It's almost like you don't just have to go in with grounds of appeal. You have to go in satisfying the Court of Appeal that they have no choice 
but to overturn a conviction because they take the view that they've been convicted by the court of first instance. So that conviction must be correct unless you can 100% show us that that conviction was wrong and should be overturned. We're not going to look at it, which, yeah, is understandable on some level and that they've been convicted by people being convicted by their peers and by a jury. But it creates barriers whereby people who've been languishing in prisons for years and unless they find that absolute gem that 100% proves that they didn't commit the offence they've been convicted of, then they're going to be languishing in there for life. And I perhaps shouldn't say it because, you know, I'm an officer of the court, but there does sometimes seem to be an impression that there's more concern about upholding the look that, you know, the justice system is absolutely fine and doesn't have any issues and always gets it right than to addressing the fact that people who have been wrongly convicted shouldn't be convicted and should have their convictions overturned, if that makes sense. I think sometimes the barriers are far too high in terms of being able to put right things that went wrong. And I think that is something that I would want to address and how the system could be made fairer and as I say how you know there can be more funding to do that because certainly for appeals legal aid there is very very little funding for so you've got the combination of the very very high barrier that they have to reach to have a conviction overturned with very little funding being there to do it you know even less so for you know a trial of first instant it's it's really not worth taking on appeals on legal aid. You're better off doing them on uh, pro bono because it's so restrictive. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I mean, I'm sure from on behalf of The View, I can say thank you so much for your work and how much you're contributing to helping people that, that need help. So thank you so very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Been lovely speaking to you. Thank you, Jeremy and Madalena, for that fascinating insight into the mind of a criminal defence advocate. It's inspiring to know that people do still care about the profession and that they want to make law accessible and justice more equitable. To find out more about More Justice, Jeremy's new law practice, please check out morejustice.co.uk. Check out The View magazine at theviewmag.org.uk and follow us across all our social media platforms. Thank you for listening.